Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for On the Money, presented by Embassy National Bank. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Joe Moss. I'm president of of Embassy National Bank, and we bring you the show On the Money, where once a week on Wednesday afternoon, we talk about a topic that is uh, uh, apropos for being successful with your small business. And uh, today's show uh, is going to be right up the alley of small businessmen today because I've got Charles H. Green, who is the founder and CEO of the Small Business Finance Institute. And he is, uh, if not a nas- the national expert on this, he certainly is the expert here in Atlanta on uh, what we call innovative funding or being able to grab funds and, and funding and investment from sources outside of the uh, mainstream banking community. So, Charles, really happy to have you. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't you um, give us a little talk about what Small Business Finance Institute is and what you do and how you help. Okay. Well, I'm a, I'm a recovering banker. I spent about 30 years in the business, and uh, uh, either they had enough of me or I had enough of them. But uh, I started an enterprise uh, four years ago that trains bankers and non-bankers how to lend money and how to uh, deal with the small business uh, marketplace in terms of distributing capital. And um, so is your focus primarily on bankers? That's probably the largest part of my customer base today. But there are a lot of non-bankers, too, who are trying to get their skill set better and and become better at, at what they're um, – you know, they want to get the money back. And um, um, I find it interesting that as long as banks have been around, you made a comment that you like to train bankers on how to how to lend money. You'd think we'd learn by now. <laughs> well, when you and I were younger bankers, uh, our companies used to invest considerable resources in sending us around the, the bank and uh, sending us off for training uh, to, to really understand our job. We came out of college with a degree, but we didn't know how to be a banker. Uh, that changed over the years as more pressure got put on the bottom line and uh, skills got stratified and siloed into such that someone didn't really have as much of a uh, a wide horizon to, to move their career, but they were going to move up or they were going to stay somewhere in, in a one-job pattern. And there's just not as much training. So we're trying to uh, digitize a lot of that. There are a lot of banking schools, a lot of bank training organizations around. We're taking ours into uh, video to to try to distribute it better. And makes a lot of sense given what's going on with technology and people being able to sit at their desk or do it at home or, or whatever. Um, you know, we can talk about uh, where banking went prior to 2000. Eight or 2007 uh, in detail, but actually what I wanted to do to spend time today was on what I what we call innovative funding. And Charles, you've actually got a new book uh, coming out. When's it going to be published? Uh, it's supposed to be out August 25th. And uh, it's going to be called The Banker's Guide to New Small Business Finance, uh, Venture Deals, Crowdfunding, Private Equity, and Technology. But as you read through this, Charles, uh, the small businessman needs to read this thing. I think so. I think it'll be a, a good handbook for understanding how decisions are made, how capital is being distributed, 
and how they can best line up with the appropriate source for the kind of funding they need. And um, this concept of uh, innovative funding, it, what started all this? Well, innovation is a large word, and when you think about uh, some of the old products we are very familiar with, like asset-based lending and uh, factoring, these were innovations where, uh, back in the Mesopotamian times, how a, a merchant— That was a long uh, time ago, was, everybody. <laughs> the, the, the merchants wanted to sell their products, and someone else was going to pay for them on the other side of the, of the sea— and uh, they couldn't fund it. They were afraid to ship it without that. And so what happened was someone on the other port would buy the receivable, someone who was local and could take those shekels and hold on to them. That was an innovation. Uh, fast forward that into the late 90s, and we had uh, some folks that took a factoring concept to credit card processors and said, you know, we could advance monies to some of your card customers if you'll – peel off a stream of their revenue and pay us directly so we don't have to worry about them getting the money and paying us later or it go to their bank account and the bank have a tax lien on it or the bank grab it for their payments. And the merchant cash advance business grew up out of that. It was very manual back then except for where the processor held money back for the, the advance uh, sum. And it's just advanced from there. I mean, it has gone there with the technology platforms that have, have really come to bear over the last 10 years. Now, you made a point in the book. I was able to, a couple hundred, I made, was able to get through uh, a lot of it, actually. You make a point about how Amazon is, is kind of a pioneer in this whole thing. Why don't you talk about that? Well, there are, there are three big uh, proponents to this. Amazon created digital trust. Uh, that's where you would actually... Uh, have confidence to give them your credit card number, your shipping address, the, the three-digit code on the back of your card, and they will deliver you a book. But that book, of course, became just the opening to a retail mall of virtually any product you want to buy globally. Uh, that transformation took about three years, although it took them a while to get profitable. It took them a very short term. Uh, they got everyone to searching their site for more goods and services. It took 25 years for the banking industry to get just a majority of their customers to carry an ATM card. And, and so that, that difference, of course, bespeaks technology in many respects, but also just the consumerism versus the, the good saver. Uh, uh, why? why? I, I, this is probably a question that could fit in anywhere, but why do bankers always find themselves behind the innovation curve? Well, they're really not behind the, the innovation curve when you think about handling cash because uh, where we went from 1960 to 1980 in terms of managing cash was light years. Uh, when I first joined a bank in 1979, they were six year I'm sorry, six months past paying their employees in cash. Hmm. The, the cashier would walk around and count everyone's money out on their desk, and finally they went to – checks and then of course direct deposit and then of course we got debit cards as well as the ATM cards and they were online when i was in college i could go uh if my my mom mailed me a check i could go to the ATM that night knowing that i would receive it in the mail the next day i'd go take out a $25 loan to go out to the local bar and celebrate cuz i had money on the way and and the bank didn't know i was overdrawn because they weren't online uh 
But but we made these advances on the deposit side. But in the book, I talk about how on the loan side, we got an Excel spreadsheet, and that's about as far as it's come since then. I I see that, and and uh, we still have people filling out financial statement and pen. Uh, so we're kind of on the back end of all that, and lend and lending takes a ton of paper. Yeah. You, you know, it's 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 ripe for innovation. Um, but these other companies have somehow gotten away from that, and and uh, they've been able to push forward and completely automate. Is it because they're not under the purview of a regulator? Is it a some people call it a, a bubble that's going to burst down the road? Um, uh, where does regulation and uh, fit into all this, and 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 what's gone on with some of these new funding sources? Well. Uh, banks are funded by the public, and the federal government through the FDIC insures those deposits so that um, your client is indemnified against any mistakes that your bank may make. So if if, uh, if a bank writes off a large loan, it doesn't come out of anyone's checking account. Mm-hmm. It comes out of their own capital, and if their their own capital won't meet that, then the FDIC steps in. Uh, private investors um, are really – the shareholders of these innovative companies and it's their money on the line for the money that is being loaned here. And so that risk appetite, while different, is also a lot more focused. Banks have to contend with CRA, have to contend with uh, a variety of products. They make car loans, student loans, credit card loans, business loans, long-term, short-term, and so forth. Whereas these innovative companies are really attacking a niche marketplace, and it's very precise and it's very exact. Your bank loan application will look like a complete history of the world Mm because you need to know about every possible risk that you can find and manage it, whereas the innovative lender is gathering a much narrower sort of data and they're going out into the cloud and gathering other metrics that can be identified with either this business or this industry or this location or this part of geography and making a credit decision based on a different model that's been developed through metadata uh, that, that tells them the likelihood of repayment is high enough to meet their standard. Um. Let's talk about that metric because no longer is it an interview, look at your credit report, how do you plan to make money, uh, close the deal, get a lien on your real estate, and off you go. I met with a payday lender who makes consumer loans, and uh, his loss rate is uh, surprisingly low, 2 to 3%. Mm-hmm. And I said, do you look at credit report? And he said, uh, sometimes. So where do you get your data? He said, we buy what he, you said, metadata, and they know from a name and an address and a social security number, they can go out there from Facebook, Google, all these places, and they know all about your your behavior, and they can then isolate that behavior to determine whether you're going to pay them back or not. It's pretty incredible, but uh, one thing they had to work with that you never would have was uh, at the beginning of these uh, companies, they could go to Experian or Equifax and basically rent the playground. And that's to say, okay, 
these credit reporting bureaus had a big database of 10 million loans and borrowers, and they could go in with different attributes saying, well, what if somebody has a a credit score of 700 or 650 or, you know, they played out different scenarios with dozens of different data fields mm -hmm. to see what that best profile looked like. And another thing they do that the banking industry can't do for many reasons is they look at credit risk and the, and the risk of losing, you know, transactions as a line item, not as a lost reserve. That's interesting. And so they form those profiles and just decide what level of loss tolerance will they have based on the fees that they're going to assess and, and generate revenues. Um, let's um, let's talk a little bit about your book. I, as I said, I was reading through it. It's a um, a real good source for a small business person to read. And uh, but also a good source for a banker to read, so he can find out where his business is going, uh, and why he may not be getting what he used to get. Um, I liked your uh, your dedication, uh, and it, and it struck me that uh, you talk about all the people that have driven hundreds of miles, who work takes them to diverse places like dry cleaners, convenience stores, donut shops, loading docks, highway motels. All these lenders are out there engaging in countless conversations. You dedicate it to their hard work. And um, this says that you got to go out on the street to get your business. But with technology, you would think, well, maybe I don't. But you know what? This stuff doesn't change, does it? No, it doesn't. It won't ever. You've got to be out there, and you've got to get to know all these businesses. You've got to meet them, and that's where you're going to be able to get your business. There's a, uh, a quarterly survey of capital markets that's conducted by Pepperdine University, their college of business, and it talks about where people are, who, who's going to be borrowing money, uh, who expects to have an easy time of it versus a hard time of it, who borrowed money in the last quarter. Something like 71% of the respondents say they're going to go out to get financing and they're going to start at their local bank. And the smallest category is uh, besides raising private equity, they're going to go to friends and family. Yet the results are just the opposite. They have a higher approval rate with the friends and family and than they do with the bank. And, and it's it's a flipped sort of, of metric, which is kind of interesting. The the big thing about these technology platforms that are that are funding businesses is that the vast majority of the buying public doesn't know they're out there either. Hmm. And and when they talk about some very impressive numbers, uh, one source told me they think about a hundred billion dollars has gone through this collective channel over the last ten years. Um, a very high percentage of that is loan renewals and churning, what I would call churning. A lot of merchant cash advance businesses, if everything is going smoothly on your loan, when you've paid it back about 50%, they'll offer to re-up it or even give you more money and start the amortization back over. Now, now which counts as a new loan. <laughs> right. Right. But as you and I know, uh, in terms of their already very high rate of return, that puts it from the stars into the galaxies. Right. Right. Well, let's talk about that. Then um, uh, the small business person, let's not talk about starting a business. Let's say that uh, they they want to grow. 
and they've got feel like they've got a good concept, they're making money, and and now they've got to go out and get that next level of capital. Um, where should they start? Well, recognize that the the innovative lenders, for the most part today, are picking what I would call the low hanging fruit. Most of the loans they're picking off and funding that they're providing, you're not looking for it anyway. Think about a restaurant that is in leased premises and the business owner wants to get $20,000 unsecured for working capital. Mm -hmm. Your bank would have a very, very difficult time funding that and how much collateral would have to come in and so forth, and and a lot of times they don't have it. It would take us two years to put that together. But that's a very easy loan for these these other folks to make. You know, they're going after the low-hanging fruit in a very niche marketplace. Um, That is a different paradigm. When when you're looking at, at... Getting money to grow, it it gets back to what kind of business are you and what kind of growth are we talking about and what's the horizon? There's a lot of conversation around the cost of some of these online innovative lenders. And it's seemingly very high when you compare it to the history I've lived through and you you live through every day at the bank where uh, we hope to have a net interest margin in the 4%, 5% range and we're going to be very happy. These folks are charging... Uh, what would be 30 to 40 percent APR, except they don't break it down into APR because they're not required to. They're making loans to a business and they don't have to quote their APR. That's right, and they don't have to calculate it, and they have other ways that they refer to it. If you're a restaurant owner, and let's say you have an opportunity to expand your seating area on a patio, Mm -hmm. you need to do some landscaping and buy some tables and chairs and maybe hire another staff person. But if you can get that open by, say, the end of March in a market like Atlanta, you're going to earn that back very quickly, that $30,000, because you're going to have 30 more seats to be able to turn out in lunch and dinner. Well, if, if you do that and your restaurant is making the average of, say, a 60% gross margin, and you're paying 35 or 40% on this capital short-term over, say, a six- to eight-month period, that's not a bad trade-off because you're ultimately going to you know, earn more money than you're spending anyway, and the debt will be gone before next season rolls around, mm-hmm. and you can replicate it without any kind of debt in place. Um, this is Joe Moss. You're listening to On the Money, brought to you by Embassy National Bank. We're talking to uh, Charles Green, who runs a company called Small Business Finance Institute, and he is a uh, – innovator in the world of innovative financing so we're really happy to have him on we're talking about what in today's world if a small businessman needs to borrow money to grow where should he go um you've got a lot of different sources would you start with your bank if i needed twenty thousand dollars i probably wouldn't uh however recognize some of these innovative lenders are uh you have to have uh, credit card income as part of your matrix mm-hmm. uh you have to have a short term horizon you you don't want to get into them for years because then the costs become prohibitive and i think uh in many cases these people who do renew their loans several times wind up having essentially a partner they'll never get away from so is this a uh are they taking too short term of approach in order to go out and get that twenty to maybe seventy five thousand dollar unsecured loan? It depends on what they need the money for and and how fast that capital will change their revenue stream. 
if they're spending 20 but they don't expect the payback to be for three years, then that's not a good deal because it'll bleed too much cash flow, meaning that they'll have to borrow more money to kind of get through their season. If it's a quick return, like the restaurant example I mentioned, uh, that's an excellent way to to get through that. A lot of the uh, businesses in hospitality who are in a seasonal geography, think about a resort community or a beach, uh, they may have some downtime when there's just not a lot of people coming to the beach. This is a good source of money to sort of help them cover overhead until the rush comes back with warm weather. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about crowdfunding. What's crowdfunding? I hear that term all the time. Crowdfunding is simply organizing a community around a common purpose that makes sense for everyone, where everyone contributes into an incremental part for a a success or a goal that we all share the benefit from. One of the best crowdfunding stories was Joseph Pulitzer, who was the owner and publisher of the Newsday uh, newspaper in New York City. Uh, and at the time, the France had given a, a magnanimous gift to the people of the United States and called the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. And they were unsuccessful at the time of trying to raise money for the construction of a, of a big stand to put the statue on. And so Pulitzer was incensed about this and embarrassed, and he started running editorials and front-page news stories about the real importance of building this and for New York to stand tall as a beacon to the country and to the world and ask every one of his readers to make a contribution to pay for this. And within about six months, they raised $125,000. The average uh, contribution was less than $1. But that's a great example of crowdfunding. And when I look at some crowdfunding opportunities, I don't I don't see where I'm getting any return for that. Uh, are some of those donations versus investments, and how does all that work? They're everything from donations to um, loans to you can buy capital now thanks to the Jobs Act. And some of them, I, I call this model, uh, pay me and I'll build it. So there's a great story covered in Inc. Magazine last year about one of the most successful crowd funds. A guy had been developing a wristwatch that would pick up a Bluetooth signal to pull his email from his smartphone. Hmm. He could just look at his watch and read his email and know when his calendar was changing and so forth. And he he needed uh, some more money to finish development and start manufacturing them. And the angel community sort of turned their back on him and said there won't be enough demand for this. So he went out on to Kickstarter to raise $100,000. And within 27 hours, he had raised a million. And over the course of the next three weeks, he made that 10 million. Hmm. And he had, all of these had come with, if you, if you give $99 into this program, you get no equity, you get no assurances of anything. But when this watch is ready, I'm going to give you a watch that I'll normally sell for $150. So you get a discount on the, on the lots, on the watch that you're buying. I had a friend that came up with the chart a charcoal cooker that uh, he built, and um, and that was his thing. It is, uh, you know, you put in 50 bucks, I'll send you one once it all gets going, and normally you'd be able to, to get it for 100 bucks, or so you'd have to pay 100 bucks. So the expectation was I was just pre-funding the purchase of, of, of that. Um, now, you mentioned the JOBS Act. What, what was that? What, what does that acronym stand for? 
jumpstart our business startups. And and what was the intent of that? Well, there had been several bills floating around Congress uh, during 2009, 10, 11 about uh, crowdfunding on the web to be able to sell small equity stakes in companies. It would basically allow small businesses to get into the equities marketplace, which uh, heretofore were just virtually unapproachable because of all the legal and accounting work that has to be done as a precursor to being able to go sell shares. The Job Act actually uh, amended several provisions of the 1933 Securities Act, which just gave a, a safe harbor for smaller companies to do less due diligence and work to be able to go up and sell up to a million dollars of equity. Uh, it does have a some limitations on investors. If your net worth is less than $100,000, you're limited to like being able to invest about $3,000 a year or something. And if it's higher than that, you're still capped at around $100,000 a year. But um, essentially, it lets smaller companies come to the marketplace to raise money through a very large number of investors. Um, one of the other important provisions was um, before the act, there was a 500-person cap on ownership of your company before you were compelled to be a reporting company. And that number was raised to 2,000. I like that raising it because I've run a public company before and it's, and it's not fun. Well, they included community banks in that too. Right. As you know. Yeah. Um, I, uh, the, the whole concept of, um, of the job bill I thought was, was really good. But then I started looking through some of the details and I, it seems still seems cumbersome. I mean, I, I still have to, uh, write out all my projections. I still have to do a business plan. Um, the liabilities are all still there. It just means that I can market to a little bit bigger group. Right. Well, the the uh, Securities Act said that a, a licensed security broker couldn't pitch an investment on someone they didn't know that wasn't already an acquaintance or a client, which put up a whole new kind of barrier as to who you're going to tell this to. Uh, I'm a little... You know, I, I think it needs to be opened up some more. One of the provisions is if you're going to raise over $500,000, you have to have audited financial statements. I would just betting, I haven't been to your bank but a couple of times, but I, if I came over there today and talked to your commercial loan crew, uh, the number of, of loans you have that are less than a million dollars that have audited financial statements, I could probably count on one hand. We don't really get them. We don't really, and even the ones over a million. I mean, these are small. And that's, I mean, yeah. they get compiled financial statements, right. but what's the point of having an audited financial statement? It's, it's, it's much too high of a barrier uh, at this point, a very stiff cost. Yeah. In fact, I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal, Frustration Rises Over Crowdfunding Rules, and they're going through like every other piece of legislation. It will be amended and amended and amended. And in fact, the uh, SEC chair, Mary Jo White, has got a rule out there now that people are opining on uh, that will, you know, kind of continue to break this up a little bit and make it a little bit easier to do, um, which is a good thing. So if I'm a small business, it sounds like if I just need a working capital loan, um, if a bank is out of the question and I want something real quick, I can go on the Internet to a couple of different locations and probably apply and get that loan very quickly. That's quite possible. And I'm going to be paying 
depending on how quickly I pay it back, I could be paying, uh, I could be paying upward to 70% APR. You could, or even if your business, uh, did very well and, and sales accelerated very quickly, uh, you might even pay more, uh, because the f- financing fees in many of these products is fixed. And so when you pay it back faster, your rate yield has increased. So you might as well just pay it back whenever they want it, right? Right. And, um, and then if I've got, uh, if I'm a startup and I want a big equity investment, um, you know, the Jobs Act may help me, but at the end of the day, I'm probably still going to go to friends and family, aren't I? You're probably going to have to to start because you need audited financials. But you also have to recognize investors aren't going to say yes just because you're asking them on the Internet. So there, there's still got to be a good business plan, a good model to make money. And I think startups will have a hard time getting to uh, success in crowdfunding without going through the vetting process of, say, angel investors. And then the whole Kickstarter group, um, if you've got an idea and you want to get money to start producing product, uh, that is certainly an alternative for people. It is. And, and, you know, there, there have been stories out there. I've read a couple of, of, uh, small businesses in, uh, interesting places where people donated money to a business. A little Vermont town had a donut shop and coffee shop that was sort of like the hangout for everyone on Main Street. And the owner died and it was shuttered for a few months. And a young couple decided to take it over, and and they had some savings, and they were willing to step into that lease and pick back up where the shop was. But they were a little short, so they did a $5,000 crowdfunding campaign and asked for donations. And in return, those who donated got a, a premium, a gift. So if you donated $25, they give you a free box of donuts. And if you donated 50 you'd get a cup of coffee free one day a month and so forth up to a $500 gift. And they they got that $5,000 raked up in about four days. I can imagine. But at the same time, like any other uh, fundraising, you got to be very, very careful with the tax implications and make sure it's con- we had a uh, get structured right. We had a gentleman here in the studio just recently who said uh, – he heard of a story where the guy went out and raised 150 grand, and apparently it didn't settle correctly. He ended up with a $75,000 tax liability. Business is business. And so you need to know, you know, like when they're coming to the bank, they need to have a legal entity, a corporation, and have that corporation or LLC or partnership needs to have its own bank accounts and clearly be able to stream your revenues and, and resources into the company accounts where it should be, and you're not faced with personal tax. Uh, this is On the Money, brought to you by Embassy National Bank. I'm Joe Moss, and uh, we're talking with Charles Green, who runs and started uh, Small Business Finance Institute. He helps bankers and small businessmen with uh, financing questions, and uh, we're talking about um, a lot of good things today. And uh, uh, notably, he has uh, got a new book coming out called Banker's Guide to New Small Business Finance. It's, uh, I've read through it. It's a must-read for a small businessman, but also bankers. And, Charles, it's due to be published when? August 25th. And how, am I, how can I pick up this thing? Uh, you can pre-order it today on Amazon. 
on Amazon. Okay. So that's Banker's Guide to New Small Business Finance. You've got a couple of books out there, don't you? I have the SBA loan book in print as well as one called Get Financing Now. Okay. So um, uh, you've been very helpful with uh, putting all your thoughts on paper. I wish I had the patience to do that. Um <laughs> I can't imagine what it would be like. I have trouble writing 20 pages, much less 250. It's all those credit memos I wrote over the years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand. Um, are there investors out there looking for deals, looking for startup opportunities? I'm a little skeptical of the, of the angel marketplace. Uh, it, it's, um, you know, it grew up out of the renovates of the venture capital funds, which were all local and small and maneuverable back in the 70s and 80s and then they got very successful through the 80s and 90s and now you know if they're not funding an aggregate 50 million dollars in a deal they're not interested and of course that means there's five funds that line up and throw in five million each angel investors sort of filled up that vacuum as private investors who might put an average of 25 to 50 thousand dollars into a transaction according to the american angel association the average transaction is between a million and a million three. So at even 50,000 a whack, you can see how many of those investors you have to line up in the same short time span to fund a deal. It, it's, it's a big challenge. And, and I don't know the answer to sorting that out. Crowdfunding is a step in the right direction, but it's got some maturation to get to. They're still sorting out, of course, the uh, complicated uh, compliance with securities laws through the platform itself and settling escrows and documenting and tracking these securities and um, their marketplace is still very limited. So, you know, it's, they've got some time to figure that out. Well, the one thing that I've, that I will say about crowdfunding, I think it has really opened up a market for the community just to help for the sole purpose of just helping. Yeah. And, and not expecting a return and not having a rigid piece of paper or contract, uh, it, people that have legitimate, uh, projects that they want to do and need help, uh, that other people think are going to have some beneficial good, uh, whether it be, uh, pre-ordering product or whatever, mm -hmm. crowdfunding and the, and these websites have really helped that cause. One, one area of crowdfunding we haven't talked about is peer-to-peer -peer lending. The largest uh, platform of that is uh, thelendingclub.com, and they have cleared somewhere in the order of about $4 billion of loans between consumers and consumers. The, the largest beneficiary of this is about 70% of that volume has refinanced credit cards, hmm. which, as you might imagine, has taken a, a big bite out of some of the larger banking companies that, uh, that issue tens of thousands of, of uh, credit cards every year. And uh, this is giving Joe Consumer an opportunity to buy into a very small fractional piece of literally dozens of transactions and be able to earn out a 6 or 7 or 8% annualized return compared to putting that money in the bank for a 1.5% return. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the part of it that kind of concerns me a little bit is that everybody's uh, with interest rates as low as they are and – and quite frankly, a lot of our economy relying upon uh, the interest off their money to live. Right. There is a stretch, a push to go to the higher yield. And um, 
just to get a higher yield without recognizing the risk. And there are risks, and uh, there are you know they they do a good job of giving you the metrics of what those risks are and, and how average investors are performing. But it's a it, it's an interesting world in finance. Uh, all these changes are happening at a very uh, challenging time in financial services and the economy in, in a very stale position. So who knows where all this is shaking out? And uh, we got to get back to this book because I know you wanted to talk about the book, and we've been alluding to it. But um, um, what was the what was your purpose behind it? I was seeing a lot of changes coming in the marketplace from back in in the, the mid. 2000s, I was president of a bank and heard of a company called the Receivables Exchange. And they did, uh, essentially they're an eBay for accounts receivable. My small bank wasn't equipped to handle accounts receivable financing, but we had some customers that really needed it. And so I, I stumbled into these folks to find out how I could participate with them, either by referring clients or even becoming a buyer of those receivables as a way to fill in, you know, unused um, demand I had for capital. Right. So that led me into learning more then about merchant cash advance. And then, of course, uh, by 2010, on-deck capital was becoming more of a familiar name. And I was very fascinated with with the, the whole sector in teaching a lot of bankers around the country um, I would start out several seminars by asking who's ever heard of the receivable exchange? Who's mm-hmm. ever heard of On Deck Capital? Who's ever heard of um, AdvanceMe.com? And until two weeks ago at the Stonier Graduate School of Banking, only one person has ever raised their hand and said they had heard of one of these companies. Yet, yet there's $100 billion has gone through the digital channel. That's interesting because the Stonier School of Banking, the students there are? That's the cream of the crop of the banking industry. Of the banking industry, and they don't even know these places exist. So what I like about the book is it's a message to bankers to basically say, uh, you better wake up and smell the coffee because uh, here's where this business is going. If you don't get back to the principles of getting out on the street and listening to your customer and learning their business, it's also a good message to the small businessman who says, um, there's money out there to borrow, but it's also buyer beware. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but what strikes me most about all this is that as much as things have changed, they haven't changed. No, they haven't. And at the end of the day, if, I don't know if I should jump ahead to the conclusion, but, Bottom line is, I think uh, this marketplace will shake out. They'll lose some players, and at the end of the day, uh, the, most of these companies will be bought by banks, banks who have cheaper capital, who can afford to make better-priced products and be truly competitive, and banks who have customers that trust them. Mm-hmm. Because you're not going to trust an unseen website as much as you are the person shaking your hand across a desk. And then the store, the the ball, of the the it'll keep unfolding. The bank will buy it. They'll say, "Oh, you guys are taking too much risk." We'll start to shut it down. Then somebody else will pop up on the other side. Quite possible. That's the way. That's the way it usually works. Um, well, we've reached uh, kind of the end of our time, and um, Charles, it's been a, a really good conversation. Why don't you um, give us some concluding thoughts? 
Well, the pursuit of capital has always been something that fascinated me, being involved in the trenches, uh, working for several banks over years, and, and I spent a few years with a venture capital firm. Um, my message to your customers and, and listeners is just that uh, there's a lot of work and thought goes into the business of providing capital to Main Street, but there's a responsibility on your side. If you want to access that capital, you need to understand your business better. You need to understand your own metrics, how well you're doing and how the banker sitting across from you is looking at your business because, you know, they have guidelines and they have shareholders and they have regulators that they're responsible to. And, and if you're not really recognizing, you know, what's driving their decision, you're going to get very frustrated. And, and not be successful in getting the funding you need, which limits your growth and opportunities as a business person. Those are good thoughts. And, uh, if, if I could add, like I said, the more things change, they don't. At the end of the day, your business has to make money. You got to be smart doing it. Um, cause if it doesn't make money and you're out borrowing money, you're just going to have to borrow more and more and more money. And the more money you borrow, the more expensive it's going to get. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, Stick to the knitting. Uh, I, I have counseled a lot of business owners over the years that, that being a business owner is not a lifestyle. And your accountant may be telling you how you can get money out of your business to avoid paying taxes on it. But I would suggest to you, retained earnings speak louder than any uh, tax avoidance scheme in the world. And, and, and you need to be listening to your banker more than your accountant. And sometimes you're going to pay some taxes. But, but you are not only the CEO of your company, you're the largest shareholder. And if you don't build up long-term value in your business, what have you done but just spend a lot of money that's gone? Absolutely. And uh, let me just – I can tell you as a banker, we see a lot of subchapter S returns out there with negative equity, and we scratch our heads going, he's taking a lot of money out of this thing. Is he going to take our money and run too? So, I mean, those are those are good comments. Well, it's been a uh, – it's a real good show. Charles, um, first – uh, tell everybody your website. It's uh, sbfi.com. sbfi.com. And my blog there is Advice on Loan. Uh, I publish that a couple times a week. And um, Can I sign up for it? Absolutely. Okay. And there is a um, uh, bookstore on there that's uh, about to expand but includes a lot of good books on small business finance. Good, good. And uh, the name of the book, Banker's Guide to New Small Business Finance, it'll be available in April, in August. In August. And a uh, tape of this show will be also out there on your website as well. That's right. Okay, well, good. Well, okay, everyone, this has a, been a, a, a good show, uh, very educational for me, and I've been in this business for a long time. Um, Charles, thanks for being here today. And uh it's starting to be summer, it's Atlanta, it's hot, it's muggy, so try to have a little fun in these long evenings when it gets cool. And most importantly, be careful out there, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. 